Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich. And joining me here, uh, sitting across from me in my living room uh, for a menage a pod, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's my good buddy uh, Ryan Beach and Garrett Hole. How's it going? Hey. Um, so we're recording this, for full disclosure, on Friday afternoon. And we're probably going to hold this show for a few days because I feel like you know, we're going to be talking about the draft, but maybe not the one that is uh, at the forefront of most people's minds at this point. Um, so, with that out of the way, um, what do you guys? What do you guys? Where do you guys want to start this discussion about the entry draft? Because you know, we can talk about sort of specific players, and I know Ryan. You know, you're very familiar with all these guys, considering how much work you've been doing uh, with the prospect reports and and sort of the uh the rankings of, of all the guys over at canucks army and, and we'll get into that for sure but maybe a, a more sort of philosophical discussion about um you know what we're looking for and 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 where the where we go from here with, with some of these younger players in terms of evaluating them is more uh practical for for the listeners so you know i, I was telling you Ryan before we started the show um I felt like sort of consensus was most people had Gabriel Velarde as the third guy after, you know, there's still a, a debate between uh, Nolan versus Nico. But yeah. after that, it seemed like Velarde was the, the obvious third guy. Um, and you guys kind of went a different way and you had uh, Cody Glass there. Yeah, uh, I guess the first topic is that there's a lot of difference between what a mock draft is and what draft rankings is. So right, you'll, you'll see a lot of people who do mock drafts and they'll have Gabe Lardy as three or Miro Heiskin in as three. And people like ourselves will do more a draft ranking. I don't, I don't care where they go. I'm doing it based on who I think are the best players yes. and who will make the best long-term impact. Yeah. And so that's the difference between our opinion of Velarde compared to Cody Glass. Well, I mean, in an ideal world, there'd be uh an overlap between those two things. Yeah. Like, that's, like we think this guy's the best. He should go there. <laughs> that, that's exactly the thing. Like, um, a draft ranking is just basically best player available or in order of descending highest to lowest, um, expected output over their career. Then the other one is the mock draft is where these people are guessing that order is also taking into account need, which is probably overrated because of the fact that most of these guys aren't ready for four to five years anyways. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that's sort of the, the thing people... It seems obvious, but at the same time, the way you hear sometimes um, media members discuss uh, these draft picks, it's very confusing because they're like, oh, you know, the Canucks, for example, they took Ole Olevi last year. And yeah. They have a few guys that they've drafted the past few years or, or accrued in their system. They're set on defense, according to Jim Benning. So, you know, they don't need a, they don't need a defense on fifth overall. And, you know, regardless of what, who you think they should take there, like if that guy, if the best player available there from a talent perspective as a defenseman, you should probably just take that guy because you never know. You know, obviously it's good to have uh, as many resources as possible. You can wind up trading them down the road, but you also never know how these developmental paths will turn out or, or, or you know, who's going to wind up actually hitting their ceilings and who's not. Well, a lot of the thing is also we're not the ones who have jobs riding on it or long-term plans to. So, like, you know, we look 
we don't we don't look at a player like Miro Heiskanen and say, okay, he's the best defenseman available. This team needs a defenseman, so they're going to take him. Yeah. We more view him as, you know, he's going to be the eighth most impactful player in the long run. Right. Obviously, a team, who whoever that may be, if that's Colorado, who has a serious void of defense, they may prioritize that because that's their construction of a team and they feel it so. Yeah. Um, and it changes the way things happen. And it's all subjective based on a team's need and who falls there. And a lot of the times I think people overthink it. Um, of what's going on is like I've seen a lot of people suggesting that Philadelphia will pass on Patrick just because they need defensemen in the long run because their current defense isn't good yeah but if you look at their AHL team and their their you know CHL prospects they have a lot of defensive prospects coming but nobody looks at that so they automatically assume that because current at this exact moment Philadelphia's defense isn't good they're going to take a defenseman well that's probably not going to be the case right (laughs) Yeah, and I think there's another um, angle that's not looked at often with need is um, there's also, and I've heard this from another scout before, where I was kind of talking about risk and reward, and sometimes they're more willing to take a riskier player that has the higher upside depending on like how much depth they have in the prospect coverage currently. Yeah. So that also kind of impacts decision-making, which will make a mock draft um, theoretically different than an actual rankings but for the most part rankings and mock drafts should be basically the same if the market was perfect yeah i think one of the most you know we've sort of all accepted the fact that goaltending uh is very uh, i'm not gonna i'm not i'm not gonna say voodoo (laughs) uh, because i know that uh, offends certain people in the in the hockey analytics industry but it's it's definitely more volatile and, and unpredictable and we have we're developing better measures to make more educated guesses but it's still a pretty big ways away from being uh, an exact science the technical term it's more susceptible to random variance yes exact what you said so uh with that said I, i feel like the the discussions we have about prospect defensemen are also uh way off because there seems to be this kind of general belief amongst people that um defensemen take longer to develop oh dear yeah <laughs> and it's it's okay we can, talk, we can talk about aging curves and all that but there is also sort of this like self-fulfilling prophecy where if you're the person in charge of uh that player's development or when he gets to play for your team and you are of the belief that this defenseman isn't ready yet then you're probably sort of like stunting his his growth as a player and pushing his develop his developmental curve back a bit so it's like it's a really tough thing to have an accurate discussion about because you can't just talk about it in sort of this controlled environment because there's so many of these variable variables going on yeah it's it's, sorry it's environment based entirely and it's based on decisions of people who aren't playing on the ice right so you know it could be Ole Ulevi coming to the Canucks, he might be rushed in because they are going, might eventually trade Chris Tanev, and that might have already happened by now. But, yes. <laughs> um, like, um, then, where and if he was developed or, you know, drafted and developed in another system, that he might finish his OHL career, do a year in the AHL, then come up from there. And it all changes the curve of his development on what's going to, what he's going to do specifically in the environment is a huge part of that. Yeah. Basically, there's only two facts that we know for certain. Um, one, that defensemen's performance relative to their ice time peaks around the same age as goaltenders and forwards. Mm-hmm. Defensemen enter this league on average later than forwards, although the gap has decreased over the last 10 or 12 years when I was last looking. Right. So what that does tell us is two things. Um, they, they peak around the same age, but do they develop later? My theory is no, but there's the chance that maybe it is. There's, as we said, a lot of environmental aspects. But we do know for certain that we thought they took longer to develop, or not we, but um, the Hockey, people hockey this, men. The yes, 200, the 200 the, hockey 200 men. 200 hockey men yes. uh, overstated how long it takes them to develop originally, whether or not they were uh, corrected by their current decisions. Mm. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm willing to believe that maybe once upon a time, defensemen developed slower just because maybe yeah. if the, when the game was more, more, physical. more physical around the net, it makes sense that, you know, maybe the, the guy would have to spend a few years beefing up a little bit and, and getting stronger to be able to handle some of those forwards in front of the net. But in today's game, that's not really 
much of a thing anymore. And yeah. it's like, it's much more movement based. And I don't understand why like a, a 24 year old would be more suited to do that than a 20, 20, 21 year old. Like maybe, I guess you could make, make from like a decision-making perspective, maybe you could sort of make that argument, but I, I, I seems very uh, mm-hmm. arbitrary. And the other thing, like, cause you kind of talked about a- after, or sorry, before you started Ta- uh, mentioning the whole development and peak and later entry thing. Yeah. Um, you also kind of tossed on about how defensemen might be less um, than perfect market relative to forwards and drafting. And one of the biggest reasons I think that is, is um, because teams are undervaluing offense. Mm-hmm. And yes, we know, like, for example, with a lot of studies in the NHL level, um, for example, with don't tell me about hearts um, war model, defensemen's value definitely comes from defensive impact a lot more than forwards do on average but that offensive impact still matters a lot especially when you're dealing with these players are playing against 90 percent competition that will never even see the nhl ice um and so like you know there's like studies that were done long ago by reese and studies that were done later by myself where you notice that they're definitely able, scouts are definitely able to figure out which defensemen are the defensemen who are more likely to make the NHL versus not. Like mm-hmm. they can see the non-scoring attributes right. that make them something good. However, they seem to under undervalue scoring relative to those attributes. Well, do you think some of it has to do with the fact that um, we have sort of fewer events to evaluate them on, just because? Like, obviously, if a guy has otherworldly point totals as a defenseman, mm-hmm. that's generally a sign that he's doing something well and, you know, he's involved in, in the action. But we, we know that, especially like at the NHL, for example, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of flaws with just evaluating defensemen purely based on how many points they have. Like, yeah. you, you know, a guy like Anton Strahlman can help drive your offense a lot by not necessarily getting a lot of points by but by, by just moving the puck and mm-hmm. getting you moving in the right direction and that is a part of the offensive game and you know with our juniors major junior stats for example like the yeah. data is so archaic at this point still that it's like you, all you really have is points and i guess shots now and it's like it's 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 very tough to without actually watching all of those games to know how involved the guy is actually on offense and whether it's just you know, he's kind of in the right place at the right time. Well, I do want to put a little bit of a self-plug saying that that's what my company deals with for the most part. Um, but outside of that plug... It, it only took 11 minutes for you to get there. <laughs> it only took 11 minutes. Yeah. Um, but going on to um, the whole scoring and archaic data, just using archaic data, I mean, um, I took Reese's study and redid it, uh, Reese Jessop. He looked, he made an arbitrary line, 0.6 points per game, which is, you know, like... That's bidding, but um, and then looked at tops drafted guys, so guys in the first like sixty picks, then the guys sixty through ninety, and then ninety plus. Yep. And so there's so you got six different groups, and what we found is the guys who scored um, less than that threshold that were drafted in the first two rounds, they they were good. They still made the NHL at a high percentage. However. Two things. One, they were just as successful as guys drafted in the next bin. So, like, you're around three and four guys who did score a lot. So they're being overvalued, even though they're still good. Um, And the other thing that we noticed was that most of those guys um, might have had shooting percentage deflation or or whatever because they scored a lot the next year. Ryan, do you have anything to add? No, I I, I agree. No, I agree with what he's saying. I, I think that... Uh, when it comes to valuing the offense, there has to be something at the junior level when you're taking them in yeah. order because it's not suddenly they're going to... I guess the odds of what I'm trying to say is the odds of them finding offense after being drafted right. are significantly lower than if you're taking someone who's put up points up at every level. Right. Well, even even just... If you're... like, Let's look at a couple of like uh, examples like Vlasic yeah. or Hamhuse. You know, those guys are, they're more defensive guys. Their values are not in their point totals in the NHL. Right. However, in junior, their value is in point totals. Yeah. Because of the fact that if you're good enough to push the play at the NHL level against the best, I mean, there's obvious exceptions. The exceptions will always exist to every rule. But for the generality, if you're good enough to push the play at the NHL level and be a two-way guy, then you're going to be good enough to, you know, beat these 
players who, you know, some of them won't even be able to play in the ECHL. Right. In theory, you're not just going to develop this new skill out of nowhere when yeah. you're like 25 playing against the league, the world's best players. <laughs> the the later the later in career that you become a shutdown defenseman, generally the longer you're you end up going. The guys who are shutdown defensemen, even good shutdown defensemen in the CHL, don't necessarily translate to the next level. While that's not always the case, that is more often than not the case. So kind of a related topic. Um, I'm not sure how much people have been talking about it recently, but I know in the past it was it was a topic of discussion. And it was sort of this idea of potentially uh, moving the the age cutoff for, for the draft and maybe, you know, moving it back a bit and so that we have more... Uh, you know, more data or more information about the players. We basically buy ourselves an extra year of figuring out whether they're good or not before they come into the league and how that would affect the draft and whether, you know, teams would get a lot better at it and we'd see fewer, fewer busts taken and, and, you know, the draft order makes sense. Like where are you guys at on that? Do you think that that's something that should be explored or do you think that it's kind of good because it provides sort of a competitive advantage where, you're kind of you're adding this element of higher variance because you do know a little bit less but if you're looking at the right stuff and you're a smart team when it comes to drafting you really are going to do better than your competition i think there would be some improvement across the board but i think the teams that do well currently would continue to do well because they're limiting their subjectivity and things like that um, that's factoring into their decisions um, already so if you're applying another year then some teams might get a little bit better but i think a lot of teams still try to draft hockey players yeah they still have this picture in their head or um, idea of what a hockey player is and how a hockey team is going to be and then it's, and that's what's you know changing how they're drafting and who they're drafting and their draft strategies um, where a lot of times they're not just going for the best player available sometimes they're, they're sometimes going after uh, what people like to refer to as the fridge or the coke machine yes. who is big and tough and junior um, but it's not going to continue that way right because yeah. he's playing against 15 16 year olds right so um, I think there'd be some improvement but I think overall the teams that, th- that thrive currently would continue to do so yeah I definitely agree in There'll be a decrease in variance, like Dimitri said, um, which will mean that everyone's drafting will become more tight-knit. It'll be, there'll be more parity, I guess. Right. The, the marginal improvement of being a good drafting team will become less, but the best will still be the best because the processes that were the right processes are still will stay the, the same. The process I? Process I. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I, th- I, think, I think it's an interesting discussion. I mean, I'm, I'm all for... Uh getting it right more often than not but it does you know the, the the uncertainty is ultimately what kind of makes the draft fun and, and from our perspective if you are uh looking at the right things or trying to remove some of the noise um it, it does give you kind of a head start on everyone else so selfish, yeah. selfishly it makes it a, a bit more of a fun experience yeah exactly I, I look at teams like tampa bay and they yeah. prioritize skill and speed in their later rounds yes. and now suddenly we're getting to a point where they're having these players like Matthew Joseph and, and, and Mitchell Stevens and players like this who they're going to they're trending more towards being an NHL player than anything. Yep. And, and they're going to fit somewhere in there and they can go anywhere and they give them a lot more um, adaptability. I don't know if that's the right word for right. it, of going forward for right. their organization. And so they might have two or three of the similar players, but if one gets injured, they have one who can step up or they can trade one to fill a need like a top defensive prospect where things like that, yeah. where it's, it's, it gives them more options in the future and teams that I really like that um, do similar ideas, Carolina, and they're accumulating all these assets and players and things like that. And now they're going out and getting what they need to fix their problems. So they have, you know, their loyalty towards their goaltending situation was an obvious flaw. They have a draft pick. It's no harm. They have all their top prospects and suddenly they're going to take that next step. Right. right. So I think it's just a, that difference of philosophy is what's really separating teams. Yeah, well, I wonder how much of it is. I think the philosophy is is a good point because, you know, we've talked about this before in the past many times, but you can't like you can't pigeonhole the players based on you can't draft a guy and be like this guy is going to be our you know third liner or fourth liner because that's not like usually those the best those best guys are like the failed top prospects right like so when you're drafting for specific needs or trying to you know fit them into these tight uh, roster spots like that's it seems like a not the best way to approach the draft no exactly you're trying to fill a need that isn't there yes with a uncertainty well plus yeah (laughs) I mean, what's when people are looking for depth players, 
from the draft. Let's be honest here. How much do Death's players cost in terms of trade assets and um, signing through free agency? Generally speaking, they're not expensive to go after. So that's why you know go go for the go for the fences. Swing. Yeah. <laughs> go for the fences? Swing for the fences. Well, I was, was going to say go big or go home, and I was like, eh. But then go, it connotates towards go like, fences? go for the tall guy, and I was halfway there. Go for the fridge, right? Yeah, go for the fridge. <laughs> oh, my God. Stick stick the hockey gear. And go for the fences. Oh, uh, I finally found the guy that I was looking for, though, for an example of the fridge. Uh, this is Reese Jessup's favorite example, Cameron Abney. Mm. Six foot five, drafted in the third round by the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, can anyone guess how many points he scored in his draft year? He played 48 games, and it's a forward. Like eight, probably. Uh, you you doubled. Four. <laughs> oh, man. Third round draft picks. How many penalty minutes did he have? Like 150 or something? 103. Nice. With a plus minus of minus 17. There we go. Um, so, where, where do you guys want to take this discussion next? What, what, is, what is like a good... Um, I had all the points I want. I'm done. You're, you're done. You, you, you did the you did, you did the hockey data plug. Yeah, yeah, I plugged in hockey data. I talked about you know uh, defenseman, which is my biggest thing because you know Logan Stanley. Hmm. Um, yeah. Do you guys have uh, like an internal uh, preference for for w- what league the player is coming from? Uh, I seem to be. I don't want to say attracted because that sounds odd, <laughs> but um, aroused. <laughs> <laughs> players from Sweden and Finland mm. seem to jump out at me right. um, throughout. So someone like Eric Branson, Elias Pedersen is a perfect example, yes. but Eric Branson, I think is kind of the guy from this year that I noticed at the U18s last summer um, as someone like, okay, that looks like a really good value bet in the second, third round, depending on where teams land, right? Are you falling for the U18 fallacy? No, I do not I'm fall sorry, for I'm that. Just kidding. I'm just that kidding. was That's his D-1, one, so that's that's fine. You yes. can fall for that fallacy a bit. And then he's someone that you kind of keep an eye on going throughout the year, and then suddenly now he's pushed himself into that first round. And, it, and those signs are there because he's playing the way that the NHL is playing now. He moves the puck well, and he can he create that offense that we were talking about earlier. Um, but yeah, it just seems that there's a lot of Swedish players and Finnish players that – just seem to push themselves up as we get close to the draft. Right. Um, and they, they in the second round, they seem to do extremely well. It definitely looks like a strong year for Europeans. Yeah, I will, I will agree with that for sure. I mean, as someone that's watched uh, a lot of major junior, um, I would definitely prefer someone playing in a pro pro style league because uh, yeah. Cause you know more. It's, it's that uh, fear it's here. of the unknown with it, Europeans. Well, I think, I think it, I think it, even though you know the ice surface might be different or whatever, and it's, it's a different playing style, like I do think it's it's more translatable to what's actually going on at the NHL level. Like you watch some of these like WHL games, for example, and you're just like, oh, this "What is def- going on out there?" Like it's like it's it's a free for all. I mean, it's 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 really fun to watch, and you see that every year. You know, it, the Memorial Cup, for example, seems to really captivate everyone's attention on on Twitter because you you realize that it's like this six five game where it just constant like lead changes and everything's out of control. And you're like, "This is amazing! It's a it's a roller coaster ride." But I don't think that's the best uh, <laughs> the best sign of how the guy's going to do at the NHL level unless he's like truly just dominating so. So by by such a, a wide margin that you're like okay well even if he falls back a bit relative to his peers he's still still gonna be looking pretty good. I mean there's advantages and disadvantages. I mean the CHL you have their I mean, and now the USHL because let's be honest that level is basically catching up if not almost already caught up in terms of quality. Um, you know that you get a lot of games you get a lot of looks you have a large data pool so it's not just. It's not just better league for the eye test, but it's also a better league for the numbers. Um, so there's a lot more confidence in you know what a player will be and how you project. There's definitely a lot more issues with Europe because you know you got the issues of whether the playing style will um, translate, but you also have the issue that you know these kids are not playing the same type of roles. Usually, you know, like when we look at like for example scoring in the CHL. It's not just whether or not the player was, um, you know, the highest scorer, but it was also the fact that the player was good enough that the coach gave him the opportunities to be the highest scorer. And when you deal with Europe, you know, these are not development leagues. Um, these kids are the younger players, not the older players. And um, they're not the guys who are usually driving the bus for their team. So, you know, there's a lot. They're not quite making the minutes to give substantial um, samples. So, again, you have that higher variance. 
Yeah, I got a, I got a lot of points to top up here. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's go. Okay, so yeah, the, your point about the the major junior and CHL is is a bit of a scramble. Is um, can be a bit of an understatement. Um, for an example, like I went to the uh, Winter Hawks and Vancouver Giants game um, oh, this good. year, um, and the Giants. Um, hopefully, they're not listening, but they are not very good. Yes, uh, I don't think ben, Benson was injured, and I think Ronning was out with a minor ailment, so they were just not good. I think they got outshot like fifty five to eighteen. <laughs> by Portland um, and I think the shot count they just stopped trying to uh, keep adding yeah. but like you'll look at someone like Cody Glass and he's this dominant player um, he's dominated throughout the league and then you could tell by the third period he just stopped taking that extra step right so something like that will create people to be like oh he's not trying he's because this is people's first views or whatever like that so you gotta that's a lot of the vetting processes that you have to get those multiple looks which is very fair to separate the elite from there yes um the other point is that we use analytics to help our scouting and, and things like that, but there's nothing you can, nothing can replace seeing these players live. Like I look at someone like Morgan Frost with the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. He played a depth, like middle six role for the Greyhounds because they had uh, Sinitian and Kachuk and stuff like that. Um, and he's someone who did very well in that role. And next year when these players graduate, um, then he's going to be the next step up and he right. could be a very good vet. The next poo. The next poo. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Cliff Poo. Um, yeah. So he, he could be a very good bet in the second, third round for a team because he's going to take that step up. And then people will be like, oh, well, where did he come from? Yeah. Where he didn't, he wasn't a point per game player. Thirdly, uh, Cam uh, Lawrence and Josh Weisbuck found uh, the 51% rule in the Swedish Hockey League, which is any 18 year old or younger player in the Swedish Hockey League who plays regular minutes and scores at a zero point. N- 0.09 point per game rate which means basically they were given enough ice time to somehow some way get a point exactly that theoretically 51 percent of those players become successful right and if you look at this year's crop that 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 met that requirements and some of them exceeded it a lot you have jasper boyquist who is now suddenly pushing into the first round and timothy lilligren who despite people knocking him down is going to be a very good player mono yeah. Yep. Uh, Elias Anderson, Christian Veselainen, Marcus Davidson, Eric Branstrom. So those are your top big six. And right away, like, everyone knows who these players are. And yep. then you have, like, Ricard Hug, Philip Wister- Westerlund, and Oliver Jolstrom. Mm, there uh, we go. All of these players are – they have – they've played regular minutes right. in, the, in, a, in a, a pro league. And automatically, that should put, you know, a huge sign to be like, this is someone who – is already showing success at this level and is going to take the next step up. Yep. Um, so I think that's part of the reason why that your point of these players playing against men is something you have to keep track of. Yes. It has to be something that vaults these players over junior players who are playing against 15 and 16-year-olds at times. I'm very curious about the uh, this idea of, of, uh, of drafting versus development, right? And, you know, we'd like to think that Every you know, we do most of our analysis uh, pre-draft based on how they've done up until that point with the information we have. But then once they enter a player system, like do you, do you guys agree? It's fair to say that uh, how that player's developmental path will continue to go might be subject to which team drafts him. Oh yeah, I'm, and also the individual themselves. I yes. mean, there's development curves are you know averages, and some players are going to be. I mean, Mark Shifley was a guy that a lot of us analytics people and also um, the scouting community both were kind of a little hesitant on. Um, but, you know, Mark Shifley's risen to one of the best centers in the NHL. And a huge reason for that is the fact that the guy is obsessed with hockey. Um, he's followed, unfollowed me multiple times as he's checking out stuff. Um, I'm, I know for a fact... He might be just obsessed with you, yeah. not hockey. <laughs> no, not just me. Is that why you like him? Yeah, maybe. No, uh, I'm surprised that he likes me, uh, if he does. I was going to say, if anyone uh, follows you, they probably know why people unfollow you. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, okay, so, so, like, I don't mean to cut you off, but on the point of Mark Shifley, um, you know, you're mentioning how people didn't really seem to like him as a prospect, maybe as much as, mm-hmm. as, as how high he went in the draft, and... Uh, the numbers are one thing, but you also mentioned that maybe like the more traditional scouting also wasn't really in favor with him. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much of that is the fact that, you know, it's like Ryan Johansson is the best example of this, where sometimes these guys that are kind of like just like big and lanky sometimes look like they're not necessarily oh, yeah. exerting as much effort. And well, then it leads a traditional scout to say that he's not trying really hard, whereas like these like small undersized guys just look like they're constantly moving and 
but they're really actually just doing the same thing and covering the we same used, amount of ground. We used to call Shifley Bambi because of the fact that he, his like his lower body strength was terrible and yeah. he'd like fall all over the place. But the guy is a huge student of the game. Um, like uh, recently, uh, Corey Schneider was tweeting out uh, some uh, zone entry stuff and. Uh, Mark Shifley just has ridiculous zone entries, not just in efficiency, but also in terms of um, generating passes off of entries. And I said, I guarantee you he's read some of your stuff. And so he understands why like these, this stuff matters. And so like, there's these variables that no one really can completely understand. But then on top of that, like to keep with the Mark Shifley thing, there was the guy that everyone wanted was Sean Couturier. Mm. And Sean Couturier's turned out to be an excellent, excellent defensive center. But his offense is not at all what people expected given his point production and how elite that was in the QMJHL. And let's be honest, as soon as he was drafted, he went to go to play the NHL the very next year by the Flyers, and he was put in a defensive shutdown role with pylons for the next three years. Mm-hmm. How much of that infected it affected his uh, upside and his ceiling? Yeah, I'm sure quite a bit. I mean, the reason why I brought up this idea of development is because I'm always sort of uh, intrigued by, and I don't think there's a necessarily a right answer, but it's like what you do with a prospect where um, you necessarily don't want to really expose him to the NHL level because you think he might not be ready, but he's probably done everything he can with his major junior team. And like a great example of that is a guy like Mikhail Sergachev coming up this year because, um, you know, he just got traded uh, to the Lightning. And there's this clause in place where if he plays under 40 games, they basically swap like a sixth or seventh round pick into a second rounder. Mm -hmm. And they also avoid burning a year of his UFA. Uh, They basically push back his clock for his UFA years, right? So they're incentivized to make sure that he plays less than 40 games next season for them, even though, you know, that might be a moot point if he plays really well and they're back to contending and he might stick in their lineup, but he can't play. He, I don't, I'm pretty sure he can't get sent down to the AHL still. Correct. Yeah. Unless so. And, but like, I feel like at this point he's done everything he really yeah. can with Windsor. Like what, what, what is he going to go back? Like I, so I'm, I'm always fascinated. Like do you, if you send him back there, will he really, I don't mean to become like psychoanalyze the guy, but, what is what does he have to prove at that level still well yeah there's the whole idea of overload um my 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 uh i guess i always do a powerlifting reference when i'm on your show always every time you're good Uh, for that like you know the only way that you grow is by increasing difficulty and creating more stressors and you know if the junior is way too easy you know what development other than you know giving him skating practice and uh, you know, maybe going to the weight room and eating in another year of age development, there's yes. not really much specific uh, skill set development of playing against tough players. And that is definitely a problem with the CHL because of the fact that um, you have these players who the CHL wants to keep because that's their money. Um, but at the same time, they're too good for the CHL. They're not good enough for the NHL, maybe. Um, and you can't throw them in the AHL. Yeah, well, I mean, you you know, you mentioned like a guy like Cliff Pooh, for example. Like he's playing sort of a lower role on his team, and then as the top guys, as <laughs> I said, Pooh, as the, <laughs> as the, as, the, as the top guys get phased out and, and go on to the next chapter of their careers, he takes a step up, and it makes sense that he'd benefit from being the top guy on his team now. All of a sudden, whereas with Sergachev, like if you're already eating up all those minutes and 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 being relied upon to do everything at a certain point, you do sort of. Maybe look for other challenges, and they, they might not be present at that current level. You might need to fail at the NHL level to, as you said, get get better at those certain th- parts of your game. I think the only way you can improve is he played both defensive positions because his normal partner Chatfield has to graduate. Mm. Uh, so just put Sergachev back there on his own. That's probably the only way he can develop something in the CHL. Well, we're just not, not much left, or just groom him to uh, <laughs> or play him again with Logan Stanley because that'll be hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to totally bury the guy. We want to. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's 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 talk about some specific uh, names in this draft. And you know, earlier in the show, I mentioned how uh, Ryan, you guys had Cody Glass uh, as your third ranked prospect on yep. your list, and I hadn't really 
you know, I still haven't totally done uh, my own like full research on which guys I like and don't like. I'm like, it's I'm I'm, I'm viewing this as like a, an exam in school. Like I'm really waiting till I'm going to be waiting till like Thursday night before the draft until I really dive into everything. But you know, you guys made some good points uh, in that piece, and one of them was he had the most five on five points, I believe, of any uh, first year draft eligible player in, yeah. in major junior and. You know that that's something that we've come to understand is probably going to be a better uh, indicator of future success, and that's a, a big reason why we don't like a guy like Michael Rasmussen, for example. Yeah, the the Michael Rasmussen. I was talking to someone a scout today about the same thing, and he he was said that he had Michael Rasmussen out of the first round, and we're like, yeah, okay, <laughs> we we know this, but uh, yeah, Cody Glass, uh, if I'm not mistaken, only trailed um, Yamamoto. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think Patrick had just enough more points per game than him, but uh, all the indicators of success. And if you, there's someone who compared him to Ryan Johansson during his draft year, and right. everything was higher for Cody Glass. He just kind of does everything right. Um, and that's kind of why, you know, the scouting eye comes into it as well. So we had Gabe Velarde at fourth, um, where the general consensus seems to be third, because Gabe, there's concerns about Gabe Velarde skating. Right. So that's not something that's going to come through the analytical output of it. But by us watching the games, we can say, okay, that he doesn't quite have the same step Cody Glass does. So you compare the two, and there's that eye test that will put Cody Glass ahead. Right. And I will say, there's a lot of things that Cody Glass does well, um, speaking from my job, that does well that, like... I'm gonna, you know, you realize we're just going to edit this out, out of the show, right? Dance. Like, every, every time you plot <laughs> hockey data, it's... It'll be like two-minute show. Yeah. <laughs> Garrett didn't speak on that show. You guys said he was on, but he didn't really say anything. He is, like, you know how people talk about some players who just derive a huge ton of shots close to the net. Mm. and He's mastered shot quality. The primary is. Glass is that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Glass. Would you say he's broken the glass ceiling? (laughs) Oh, no. I thought the glass. I, looked, listen, I was I was going as, for I was going for the fences with that one. As the ex Canuck um, blogger, wasn't the glass ceiling something else? Mm. <laughs> it was a much lower ceiling, <laughs> very lower. Yes, yes. Some might have called it a basement. Um, <laughs> no. Well, so here's here's something. Um, you know, when you look at how, uh, you know, it, we've definitely grown in terms of uh, looking at just point production and you sort of segment and you break it down by how much it was a five on five and, and sort of how much it was primary points and and all that stuff and then you look at you know a guy like owen tippett for example uh such a large percentage of his production is goal-based yeah and while obviously it's it's great to have a guy that scores goals because they're very important i've heard on, yeah, the, on the scoreboard and you know i do believe that goal scoring is a legitimate skill uh, you know some guys will certain guys with certain skills will score more goals than others um like where are you guys at in terms of uh how a guy like that profiles and how much you're willing to believe that's going to carry over versus maybe a guy who's more of a a, a traditional playmaker uh when i like like when i look at uh tippet i think of jake for tannen a little bit less physical but same kind of skills fast skater big body right shoots the puck really well the problem is that like he just doesn't use his teammates as well and a lot of the times that when you start progressing up the ladder, your space between you and your opponent is going to be much smaller. And suddenly you don't have that time to create that shot. So you right. see someone like Jake Fertanen who might struggle with that to get his shots off or he just doesn't read the play very well. Um, and so then that those transferable skills that he's doing really well in junior are not going to go to the next level. Yeah. So that's usually the first red flag when I see someone who... Uh, is like the Cy Young winner who mm-hmm. has a lot more goals and a lot lower yes, assists. Right? Jeff Carter from a few years ago. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's the red flag that I see. So that's where you want to find out like how is he scoring his goals and is it going to be a difference going forward? And that's and just kind of loop around to something like Kale McCarr. Um, if you watched the Alberta Junior Hockey League, it is an absolute train wreck when it comes to defensive structure. Yes. Respectfully, of course. Yes. But um, <laughs> so you watch these things and you, like there's no denying that the kid is a skilled kid. But is he going to be able to do that at the NCAA? Is he going to be able to do those same things at the AHL and then the NHL? Right. So, um, was it you that sent me the screen uh, clipping of him being at the blue line when there's a puck battle behind his goalie? Yeah. So He's ready for the breakout? Yeah. So Brooks played a very <laughs> the, he needs to go in the Rangers. Yeah, pretty much. Yes. Brooks played like man to man coverage on steroids. Yeah. So it was like the, the faceoff happened and his man covered the point. 
as the other defenseman went in. Mm. Um, so I can't remember who they were playing. So he followed the guy to there. Right. So, you know, there's two of his forwards, his other defensemen battling in his own corner as he's hanging out at his blue line with the winger. Yeah. And so, like, I make the argument of why that's a concern is that if they if the bandits get that puck out and it rings around, right. suddenly Makar is against a forward in the Alberta Junior Hockey League who is going to get annihilated by whoever has skill. Yes. Where that's not going to happen because it's different structure, it's different systems, and it's he's not going to be there, right? Right. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, that was me who sent that picture. Okay, yeah, I thought so. Because <laughs> when, when we were tracking for him, like, honestly, there were so many times where all the plays, like the plays that he's a beautiful skater and like the things he would do is amazing. But so many times his, the people that he was targeting would all fall down for like no reason. They would, they wouldn't even fall down at that point in the CHL. Yeah. Like the, I'm not saying like, Oh, these, he's not playing against guys who are future NHLers. Like these are guys who wouldn't cut it in the CHL. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get into some specific, uh, some specific names, and in terms of maybe guys you might like that are a bit off the radar, give a give some interesting little nuggets to the listeners that have managed to uh, to hang on up until this point of the show. Like, are there any any guys that you feel like, based on uh, you know discourse you've seen online or mo- or different mock drafts from different websites, uh, that you might like a lot more than you know public the public seems to, or or even in the inverse, guys that you're down on the people seem to love or whatever reason and you're not allowed to say michael rasmussen on this one or how about guys that like i'm completely confused about and i'm not yeah let's go with those let's, let's start with those that's a good let's one let's start off with libra female also known as vacaninen okay, okay. <laughs> i was uh, like i don't recognize uh, that name. Yeah. <laughs> if you use uh if your uh computer auto translates stuff it translates to libra female okay <laughs> all right so whenever i'm on the lego website all of a sudden i i have to like control f vacaninen and it's like no can't find him control f libra female. oh there he is yes that's like uh that's like cali iron iron hook yeah yes um he's he he's a guy that's been watched for a very long while he came in um, as a as a 16 year old and a 15 year old, he was a guy that scouts were really high on because he scored a whole bunch. He was um, one of the best performing 16 year olds in the Liga um, in his D minus one year. Mm. Now this year was his D year. There's a lot of expectations. People are looking at him mid first round. I think was what uh, Bob McKenzie had him. Um, and when I asked him, he at the big, I think this was September or October. I asked McKenzie whether any of the 10 scouts he asked had uh, Vakanian in in the top 10 he said yes some did um he just didn't cut the top 10 and he's completely fallen off the map because he's had absolutely no production in the liga but the interesting thing is he's also one of the best Corsi defenders in the liga Mm. so you have this guy who's has a history of scoring who's not scoring this year but it's well respected for his defensive game and his skating and smarts and has like a one of the best Corsi percentages both last year and this year Sounds, sounds like a guy that might be gaming his coursing. Uh, maybe, but like that guy, it, he's tough to read. Um, you know, whether he'll bounce back or whatnot. I mean, the one thing that's going to be interesting is that team's losing a couple players uh, next year, two are moving over to North America and whatnot, and they play a very four forward, one defenseman system for mm. power play. So he'll start getting power play opportunities. And um, he's a guy that I would say is a bit of a dark, ho- dark horse for um, late first, early second. I like it. Libra female. Libra female. Ryan, you got any guys? Uh, I, I've there's some players that the you know mainstream scouting things like that are kind of undervalued, where the analytics community more are mm. on the wagons. Right. Um, so I mentioned Boyquist as someone who we kind of identified early as um, an intriguing player, and now I've started to see him in the hovering around the 25 to 40 range, which is kind of ideally where it is. Uh, Robin Sallow, who plays yeah. as a defenseman in the Liga, uh, I'm sure Garrett has more data than I have available, but. Um, <laughs> Basically, he... HockeyData.com. <laughs> I didn't even want to do that. Uh, he scored just under the same rate as Heiskinen. Right. Um, there's a con- like, the only concern is that he's not as adept as a sk- skater as Heiskinen. But otherwise, like almost identical production and player and thing like that. So I think that's another player that comes there. Right. Um, for like players that kind of get overvalued, um, you know... <sighs> Players like Papagayoff, um, I have a lot of concerns of watching his game compared to his point production. He fell off of a cliff once he got to Prince George in a lesser role. So eh, that's definitely someone who I think is probably going to go higher than should um, just because he's big and they like big. Mm-hmm. But I saw him get checked by a 5'10 defenseman get pushed off the puck and he's like 
seven feet tall. So like, there's that, that's definitely someone who uh, will probably go higher. So when you said earlier, um, you know, there's there's guys that yeah, you or the analytics might like more than uh, more traditional um, thinking or scouting. Like, what? Give me like a rough profile of what certain um, you know landmarks or what certain points you're looking for uh, that would make you kind of be on a guy or, or as like a, a flyer or a guy you're intrigued by. So at Canucks Army, we use the prospect graduation probability system, which mm-hmm. is the PGPS. Um, PCS ripoff. Just kidding. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, so we look at their their production based on their size and, and things like that and then combine them. It's right. way over my head. I just take the numbers and analyze it. And yes. use it there. So the first thing that I usually do is we have a giant list and then it's sort by best probabilities and then it's get rid of the names that... Um, don't that shouldn't be, or should be there, right? Can I interject? It's not just sorted by best probabilities. We have we have gone a little bit further yes. in um, in uh, creating an expected value. So I mean, the safest player is not necessarily the best player because let's say you have a player who's eighty percent likely to go in the NHL, but um, his peak is a fourth liner, um, and then you have a guy who's got a forty percent chance, but his peak is an all star NHLer. Well, you know, the expected value of that is both the probability and also the upside both being compared together. Yeah. Well, here, here's a question though, uh, that I'm sure listeners that are still listening would have, if they were listening to what you just said, uh, what are you using as a benchmark to qualify a guy as a regular NHLer? Well, it kind of depends on, um, whose system. I mean, your guys system was dealing with a 200 game minimum, I believe for cohorts, right? Yeah, it was 200. It's been bumped down to a hundred, hundred plays into it now. Yeah. Um, slightly weighted too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And the 200 was just basically kind of the consensus that we had gotten from speaking with people as what is a successful draft pick is 200 right. games. Cause that's two and but a half seasons. Now the obvious and. I'm not sure I necessarily have a, a better solution, but the obvious flaw with using games played as uh, an indicator of an NHL level talent is that you're sort of going under the assumption that the people giving him those games are always right. Yeah, there's, and I mean, that's in part why expected values added in there because yeah. the, you're looking also at their uh, ceiling uh, because most, because sometimes what you get is you get like the Keaton Ellerbys or whatever. They're the players that, you know, we say, we said that probably shouldn't have been drafted where he was drafted, um, but he ended up passing the 200 game mark. And right. The reason why is because every he kept on going from team to team to team. I think he started in the Panthers, the Cam Barkers, and then because everyone wanted to you know give him a shot because he had his there was a self fulfilling prophecy there where um, they viewed him as good at one point, and so everyone said, well, they viewed him as good as one point, so let's just give him a shot since he's cheaper free now. Right. Um, and then on top of it, there's also the um, the whole bias spectrum part. Um, when PCS was first coming out, and or even pre-PCS, actually, Cam was talking about you know how size mattered. And I pointed out, um, because he noticed that size was an identifier of whether or not a player was successful, um, so that scouts were being correct with that. But one thing I pointed out was, you know, if let's say a junior, uh, an amateur scout is biased towards a player because of his size, then it's also likely that a pro scout or the GM or the coach might also be um, biased towards that, even if it's not justified. And there was one interesting thing that even though size was an identifier of whether or not a player was likely to play, it wasn't an identifier on how good that player would be if he was a player that made the NHL. Right. And, you know, and then once you actually get into the allotment of ice time and stuff, you do see the problems with just kind of taking those uh, leaps of leaps of faith, because like I remember when the Flyers traded for Andrew McDonald, for example, there was this pro Andrew McDonald argument that was like, well, look how much he's playing for the Islanders. Like, how could he be bad if he's playing like 24 minutes a night? 24 minutes against top quality competition. And people do sometimes make the assumption that because an NHL coach is giving a player a certain amount of ice time that he actually optimally like deserves that ice time. And that's not necessarily the case. And, and to, be, to be fair, coaches and GMs are generally good. The ho- hockey has a way lower or a way lesser rate of low hanging fruit than, for example, NBA did before, like the analytics revolution. Stuff right. Like that. I mean, when you look at, you know, performance per minute, whether that's uh, points per 60 or Corsi or war, 
um, there's a very solid R squared for that and time and ice per game. So for the general part, GMs and coaches know on average this guy is really good, this guy is really terrible. It's in the margins that they... It's right. the big area. But of course, yes, you get your random Andrew McDonald's, which just make no sense and no one can really understand it because that guy didn't even look good by the eye test, so I have no idea what's going on. I mean, we got Russell is the next Andrew McDonald going oh, on right now. Oh, my God. Are we, do, you, do you want to talk about Chris Russell a little bit? <laughs> you know what? He is a decent number five. And, you know, and he did a really, really – like, he was a really good number five for St. Louis and Columbus. And, but So, you know, you know what's interesting <laughs> – Chris Russell, well, a lot of stuff. Um, I'm glad you asked. Um, no, it when you when you watch him play, like the the thing about him is he's not good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually think it's I think it's the opposite because he has discernible skills. Like yeah. he can actually skate. He is a guy. And sometimes you watch him pass the puck, and you and it he's not just like flinging it off the boards and out Dan Girardi style. Like no, no. he actually has hockey skills. And if he was used in, in sort of more of that third pairing, like fifteen minutes a night, and I think that's like why he, he used to be, he was awesome. And then he went went to Calgary, and Bob Hartley, for whatever reason, like mind tricked him to thinking he was this shutdown defenseman that needed to just block every single shot. And then you can like see how his game philosophically and structurally changed, and the results obviously dipped dramatically. But I don't necessarily that's the that's the problem with. Uh, player analysis and how like we need how we need to factor in coaching because I don't necessarily think that reflects on Chris Russell as a player. It might be more on the way he's been used or been told to play. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a bit of give and take there. I mean, part of it is the fact that you know maybe it's just not a player that can take that stress load. Mm. Um, part of that is maybe the fact that he's been developed and changed his game um, for the worse. Uh, I mean, Chris Russell's still an NHL player. Yeah. Um, well, he might be getting a four years, four million per season, which is an NHL player salary. Yes, <laughs> I'm a pretty good more. NHL yeah. player. Yeah, um, there are larger mistakes that you can make. There are worse mistakes that you can make. Yep. Uh, but in the end, um, it's not optimal. Well, so the you know as as a as a podcasting professional, the reason why I brought up Chris Russell mm-hmm. is because the whole debate has been about. Uh, his micro stats and how the Oilers are actually tracking stuff that we're not and have access to all this stuff. And you've brought up, you, I, you, I work for, you brought yeah. up your, yes, your company. And today you announced your retirement from the blogosphere. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to give you this platform in a few minutes. If you want to, I know you necessarily can't talk about specifics of what you're doing and stuff like that, but no. you know, if you can talk a little bit about it, I'm open to listening. Yeah, sure. Um, the one thing I should point out is, that there's still a lot going on with micro statistics that even any company, not just myself, still are trying to learn and develop. Like, I mean, it's what are micro statistics? Micro statistics are us tracking the, the events that are not so much the end results, for example, the shots and the, the goals and whatnot. It's looking more at the individual plays that lead up to that. So that's your zone entries, your zone exits and all that whatnot. But there's a difference between tracking something, which is statistics, and analytics, which is analyzing stuff and looking at what's the value of it, how does it work out in the big picture, and understanding that in the end, results matter. Um, So when you look at Chris Russell, I know like for a big thing was that a lot of the Edmonton media leaked out or whatever was saying that, you know, they really like Chris Russell's zone exits. Which is um, patently false. He's not good at zone exits, by the way. Um, which was, well, it depends on what's your definition of Well, zone he can exits. get the puck out of his zone, but not to anyone in particular. For example, like, okay, so let's say you have a high zone exit rate. Yes. Like, you get the puck out often. Right. Well, why is that? Maybe it's just because the fact that you have more opportunities to get the puck out often because you're always in the defensive zone. You're always letting them come back in. Um, ex- <laughs> exactly. Um, like you might have a high efficiency rating. So that just means, you know, um, most of your zone exits are, um, carry ins or sorry, carry outs and, uh, passes as opposed to off the glass, which is, you know, preferred, but it doesn't necessarily make you the better, um, exiting defenseman. So there's a lot of factors that go in. And so how do you weight all these different things together? Well, you look at how does it improve results? And so what's that saying is 
these micro statistics are merely a means. They're a means to an ends, and that ends is the re- end results, which is you know your expected goal differential. Um, so when if a player is good in certain areas in micro statistics, um, but bad in overall results, that tells you a couple of things. One, it could tell you that you know there's some things that you can improve upon the player because he has weaknesses that are making up for what he's strong at. Right. Two, it might also tell you that how you're weighting these micro statistics might be erroneous. Yeah. You might be looking at someone and saying his zone exits are good, but because of the way that you are measuring these zone exits, it's actually not good. It might not even it might be bad, it might not be bad. It's just you might be weighting these things differently. I think the best way and, and you've put it before, I I know you and Mike failed at a, a graphic on this for hockey graphs. It's mm-hmm. like, like zone outputs. exits is, is it like a zone exit is an input. Yeah. And obviously you'd rather be good at zone exits than not in an ideal world. Mm-hmm. But if you're good at zone exits, but suck at everything else, it doesn't really matter. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so, but that's where I do think some of these microstats can be very useful because I do think that if you, um, you know, work on some of these inputs, all of a sudden you can get a better end result. And that's, that ties into coaching and sort of philosophy and how you want the player to play. And, and yeah. that's where I think we're, and that's where I think the NHL is headed more so than just looking at a guy's zone exits and being like, Oh, well he's a good player or he's not just purely based on this one, one, one metric. Mm-hmm. Cause like when you're, when you're looking at, you know, Corsi statistics or expected goal models, this is our attempt to measure a player's overall efficiency. Right. When you're looking at micro statistics, you're not looking at a player's overall efficiency. What you're looking at is the reasonings why he's as efficient as he is. So when you have someone that's good in certain areas and bad in other areas, you have to measure that out to towards the results. Right. I'm with you. I yeah. agree. So is there anything else you want to say on hockey data? Or? Uh, I mean, I won't even say about a hockey data. I'll say, like, I've, I wrote an article called Behind the Numbers, Results Matter in the End. And that's it basically summarizes this whole argument about... You know why micro statistics are very important. They're great for the great developmental tool. Yeah. Uh, looking at you know why a player um, might be good in certain areas, so you know when to deploy them and when not to deploy them. It's great for um, improving players, so you know what to coach and what to fix. Mm. Um, but in terms of generate, and it's also can be used as an input into models. Yeah. So I mean, like let's look at our expected goal models that a lot of the public. Um, hockey sphere uses um, it's mostly shot information now what happens if you can input also other um, more granular data like passing data and um, zone entries and zone exits well you have a, a greater um, more precise expected goal model mm. how many NHL teams are you guys working with I cannot say other than the Every, Washington Capitals everyone knows about the Washington Capitals how come um, that was the only one that was leaked uh, you guys gave people a little taste no, well, yes, you're no, smiling. people can't I, see, but you're smiling devilishly. Right I, I, no, I didn't leak it. Um, I Listen, actually man, just go for the fences. Just I didn't even it. know that it was. I didn't even know that it was going out. So it was actually a surprise to me. Um, I had no idea. Um, but it kind of depends on like how we are working with teams because um, there's there's many ways that we work with teams. There's some teams that we work with regularly. There are some teams that we work just on a contract basis, like they've just requested something and so we give them that information Hmm. um and then there's also um there's a company that we work with that they're actually um the company that the nhl teams are working with and we're just um assisting them uh so because of that there is no the reason why i'm kind of smiling is because there is no real defined answer there's no like four eight yeah, I mean, like, I, mean, I, I probably, is I'd probably estimate it, like, as a 6.5. <laughs> Fair enough. So, yeah, between between 6 and 7. All right. For a correct very, answer. Very, okay. very definitive. Well, it, yeah. it depends. Like, what month are we talking about? And, like, how do you talk about people that were the third party for, mm. and, like, were subcontracted? I mean, it's difficult. I like it. Um, but you're still uh, you're still going to be on Twitter? People can find you at Garrett Hole? Yeah, yeah, I'll still be on Twitter. Uh, um, I might be a little less abrasive to those who A, a, a lot of powerlifting discussions? Uh, there, there might be some more powerlifting. I, uh, I was, I, as this goes out, everyone will notice that I don't have any more tweets. And I really regret um, saving the plus minus one. Mm. And oh, that, really, that one's gone. That's like the Twitter hockey Twitter Hall of Fame right I there. I know. And I also I meant to keep that one, but I screwed up. 
And one that I didn't mean to keep, but I now kind of regret, is uh, Juggernaut Training Systems uh, retweeted myself. And for those who do not know what Juggernaut Training Systems is, it's um, they're both a powerlifting, weightlifting, CrossFit um, uh, company that works with like ma- improving athletes. Um, that's owned by Chad Wesley Smith, who has the eighth highest raw total ever. So, um, and I'm pretty sure he's the one that's running the uh twitter account so right. like why'd you have to delete that tweet i didn't mean to um and i'm very disappointed because imagine if you got retweeted by the eighth best hockey player of all time like how wait so how many uh do you know how many tweets you had before you started deleting them? uh ninety two thousand. well that's a depressing note to end this show on <laughs> um ryan yes. um speaking of twitter where can people find you uh, at ryan beach b-i-e-c-h and by the time uh, everyone listens to this, the entire rankings have will have been done. Yeah, how, how many do you guys do? Did you do a top 100? Yeah, we did top 100. Yeah. Like, that was a good idea. Um, when we came up with that idea, it seemed like a great idea in April. And then once we started going through it and got to the end. Yeah. Um, oh, the, and, the 87th best guy. Great. Yeah. And then I got tapped to do other ones, like freelance work. And mm. then just by the end, you're just like, I, I don't even care. I don't want to talk about Nolan Patrick. It's like, he played hockey. He's good. There you go. That kind of reminds me of how, like, the playoffs go where like the first round is so exciting and then by the time you come to the Stanley Cup final it's like yeah. mid-June and it's nice out and you're like I don't even really care about this anymore it's like the ultimate the reason yeah. why we spent like eight months doing this yeah but with that being said we're proud of it because it when it started in 2014 for mm-hmm. Canucks Army we did 15 yeah and then it went 30 I believe and then 60 last year was our doing and then so Jeremy Davis and I were we were like we're going to do the biggest one we possibly can as 100 so everyone should check out Canucks Army for the top 200 next season <laughs> <laughs> might, as well just, might as well just do the 217 or whatever it is now, right? So just go all the way. All right. Well, I appreciate you guys coming to take the time and chat. And, um, yeah, enjoy enjoy the draft. Enjoy all the, the fruits of your labor. And we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Thank you. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO Cast. Mm-hmm.